listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Contemplative, social, antipodean. Born in Taiwan and raised between New Zealand and Australia, Annie Huixin Xie is interested in music as an immersive physical experience and prefers to describe her music in terms of choreography, effective aptitude, and resonances in spatial constraints. Recent commissions include Symphony Services Australia, Art Centre Melbourne, Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, Vienne Moderne, Foundation Royaumont, and Elysian Ensemble, among others. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this, Annie. Good to oh, see you no. again. Thank you. I mean, I get to see you twice. <laughs> right? That's good. Yeah. For the listener, we had an unfortunate mishap where uh, uh, some some files went missing and we just get the pleasure of doing this all over again. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And we're going to listen to two of your pieces. And the first one I want to start off with is uh, a solo piano piece called Radius. Mm-hmm. And you open this piece with kind of just two notes, a mm-hmm. half step apart. And I've got to say, you know, I've heard hundreds of pieces do this. And I thought yours was probably the most convincing piece I've ever heard that kind of starts in that manner. Mm-hmm. The pianist is simultaneously playing on the keys and inside the piano. And it seems like you are getting some really delicate sounds inside the piano. So I'm wondering kind of how does this piece work live? Does it need to be amplified? Well, the piece... So the recording you heard uh, is very well recorded, so you get to hear all the details in there. And so this piece does present, or really naturally presents um, some challenges when it's performed live. And most, well first and most importantly, I I think it's the aspect of staging, um, because you know, a lot of times in concert halls, you have the piano on some kind of stage and the audience is sitting down, well, not on the stage, you know, somewhere like... Right. You know, the stage is elevated and then you have the audience kind of looking out to the, to the pianist. And so it kind of creates um, an unnecessary spectacle in that sense for a very intimate piece. And so... Um, the ideal situation for this piece to be experienced is to have the audience sitting around, surrounding the pianist and very, very closely. So that mm-hmm. also means not a lot of people can experience this piece at the same time. <laughs> right. But, yeah. you know, it is written as a concert piece. So it does present this strange dilemma of not being able to ever perform fully, being perceived fully. But the experience of really trying to hear what whatever is coming out from the piano and trying to see everything that you actually cannot see um, that the piano is doing um, and experiencing everything happening live, that becomes the experience. And so, you know, to listen to a recording itself is a very satisfying um, experience because... Well, for me, I get to hear everything I imagined it to be, and it was actually right. there. But for the audience, when it's performed live, it becomes a, a 
an intense listening experience that um, that makes you also start to hear the actions more. Um, mm. and then you start to hear the efforts of making these sounds, and then when you actually do hear the sounds, they will they will appear to be louder than they actually are, which was um, one of the interesting point for me while I was writing this piece. Um, it's you know how much of the action can also be perceived as part of the music that's coming out, um, despite the fact that the sound world is so. Intimate. Yeah, I mean, it, it is quite an intimate piece. And I mean, I will admit that I've, you know, I've only heard a few of your pieces, but it seems mm-hmm. like from the pieces that I have heard, intimacy could be a common thread that we trace throughout your pieces or your music. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's true? Um, yeah, I think... Well, I'm just having this deja vu moment. I'm like, I have heard these questions before. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And now I'm just like, I think, I'm trying to remember what I said last time, but I actually can't remember. But I was like, but I'm sure I was, I will say the same thing anyway. (laughs) It was so weird. I'm sorry. Um, So this idea of intimacy. um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, especially pieces that I wrote in the last, I'll say maybe two years that I have becoming a lot more introverted. Um, because right before this phase, I guess, I was being very extroverted in trying to discover um, at what level of information is too much and then you start mm-hmm. listening. And then what is the threshold be- between noise and non-noise materials? And so I was kind of always juggling between these these opposites. And when I felt a bit tired about doing that, um, I turned things a bit more inward. So as I walk and now I know what the outside could be, like the, 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 you know, the more extroverted extreme can be. Um, what about the intensity in something that is really intimate? And that became very interesting for me. And so... Um, I started to look into, um, like how to create intimate sounds and also by creating these intimate sounds, what other elements am I starting to see unfolding in this process? And so, um, that kind of ended up in, um, kind of discovering a certain, um, polarity between people and so that could be mm-hmm. between me the stuff I write and the interpretation from the performer and my working relationship with the performer and with our conversation and then how this music gets delivered through somebody else's perspective mm-hmm. but that perspective is something we have worked and have consensus over um and this kind of relationship it becomes a kind of like a social musical um exploration as well and you know the end result then becomes another relationship between the performer and the audience 
and indirectly or directly it also becomes the audience and myself. I mean this kind of triangular relationship is nothing new in music. It has always been there. Um, but um, I yeah, I, I, I thought through um, a more intimate experience, a lot of these feelings and perspectives will be enlarged and magnified. And so that was something I, I was working through in those pieces that you heard. Um, so yeah, so, so you know, it is intimate, it is small and sensitive, but to me that is almost more extreme than something that is just loud and abrasive. Yeah, I mean, I think I think sometimes the quieter something is, the more tension it holds, especially in the audience, mm -hmm. you know, because in those listening moments in the audience, if you have something really loud and abrasive, the fact that you are an audience mm -hmm. kind of goes away mm -hmm. because there's there's so much sound coming at you. But when you take away that the you know something that's maybe bombastic or something you take that away and you start to realize how quiet the rest of the audience is being or maybe how not quiet the rest of the audience is being and that that i think that realization kind of pulls everyone in closer to the sounds it's like you almost hold your breath a little bit you don't want to be the one that breaks the the quiet of of the piece or something like that yeah yeah that's that was abs absolutely it and also um maybe just like a side note for myself um you know whenever usually okay so usually by dress rehearsal of these pieces i am ecstatic because i'm seeing something new for the first time and that's I can't mm -hmm. put a finger on it, but it's very, very engaging and it's really interesting. I want to see more. And the performer, usually by this time, will be the first time they actually hear and feel um, the piece. And it certainly was the case with Radius. Um, and then it will always happen that in the premiere, during the concert, I would just want to dig a hole and hide myself <laughs> and just say this is the worst piece ever written because, oh. um, you know, it's like yeah, the feeling of being extremely exposed and then becoming so sensitive to everybody's reaction to yeah. what they're experiencing. And so it's never, I would never, even though I try, like the experience for me is never listening to that piece. And so I just keep thinking, this is the worst experience ever, 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 ever. <laughs> Um, you know, I just forget because I just feel so exposed. Right. Um, it's it's because, like everyone yeah. is looking you at once. Yeah. And then we're just like, everybody is feeling extremely uncomfortable. And right. it's all because of me. And, you know, it's just like, I should really not be here and just wait for them to tell me how it went. Right. Because <laughs> I already heard it, you know, like during dress rehearsal, I already heard it. I know this works. But then for me, in that situation, it just doesn't work. You know? <laughs> It's a really strange feeling. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, it would take me like weeks to kind of settle that thought and then come back and listen to the piece. And oh, actually, it wasn't that bad. Like maybe something did work well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it, you know, but with like a loud piece, um, I don't, you, I don't feel that way. 
Right. Right. And it's yeah. like people tend to clap more when <laughs> something satisfying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you know, just dynamic <laughs> between how your music is perceived, and people are sometimes confused by the experience, and they're confused about you. <laughs> it's just like I shouldn't be here to experience this. <laughs> It's my fault. I'll I'll see myself out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, yes, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, but I'm sorry. Right. I'm going to go now. If I didn't know any better, I would say that this is a fixed media piece with right. piano samples. I mean, the mm-hmm. level of sound consideration that you took is so high. I mean, it's such it's a very delicate piece, but all of the sounds that you kind of got from the piano are are just exquisite sounds i mean mm. i'm really intrigued by this piece because it's kind of such an anti-solo piano piece and i'm and i mean that in the best possible way yeah um like it is very soloistic um and it was also um a piece i avoided writing for like i don't know maybe 12 years <laughs> um <laughs> You know, like, I, I mean, I was trained as a pianist until, you know, maybe second year of my undergrad degree. And I'm just like, I'm done. I'm not going to play anymore. And mm-hmm. then I took a composition and, and it was, um, you know, I still had to use the piano a lot, but um, I also didn't want to keep playing. And so it was a very complicated relationship with the instrument. It's like, it was everything I knew about music. But I also don't want to be doing this. But I'm still yeah. doing music. Um, it's like it's slightly embodied, disembodied experience with, mm-hmm. with music. Um, and so it's almost like it's almost like you saw your past with yeah. that with that instrument. And it's like yeah. we always want to be moving forward and moving towards something better. And you know some you 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 remember all the bad things about like practicing for x number of hours a day or playing pieces you didn't want to play or or whatever with that instrument and it, it just all that emotion gets wrapped up in the instrument and it's hard to kind of approach it with fresh eyes again yeah absolutely and also it's an instrument that just has too much repertoire <laughs> everything you ever want yeah. to play on it has been done by somebody <clears throat> from some genre from some time in music history um, yep yeah so you know like for me it was just something i actively tried to avoid for the longest time and um and i did have an opportunity to confront that fear <laughs> and i thought i should do it <laughs> because it was time and it was given to me um and so i i had to write a piece which doesn't remind myself of um, that particular um, relationship I had with the piano, but also it's almost mm-hmm. like you you revisit something that you once loved a lot, but you stop loving it, but you come back to it because you want to still be friends. Um, right. And so it was very much like that, and I knew I wasn't playing this piece, and so um, I had to work really closely with the performer and then convey, you know, my own my own journey with the instrument to this person who is still playing and will be playing this piece. Will play my experience 
through their own body and so forth. Um, so yeah, so it is, um, you know, if you do see a video or if you ever get to see this piece performed live, um, the very end of the piece is the pianist completely giving them or him or herself into the piano. So, um, you know, and every single sound um, they make while moving both hands into as far as possible on the piano strings would just be that sound that was coming out. And so it is also a very strong visual um, expression of, um, you know, having tickled and having played and having tried to um, articulate the piano in all kinds of different ways that you, okay, you come to um, some kind of, um, you know, a resolution and you're like really giving in and then like try to, um, you know, come back to it. Um, and so a lot of times this was always hovering um, in my mind while I was working on this piece. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, in, in a lot of ways that's, that, that, that became an extremely personal piece too, except I never played this piece. Yeah, I mean, when you were writing it, you know, you, you you talked about like how you had come, you know, uh, studied as a pianist for so many years and like that's one thing and there's so much repertoire out there for this instrument. You know, it's it's both kind of a cultural monument, a historical monument of an instrument, you know, and then as you are coming back to it, as you're writing for it, it seems to me like mm-hmm. you almost kind of approach this instrument, not like the, pia- like quotation marks, the piano, mm-hmm. but rather, oh, here's this thing. It can make sound. Mm-hmm. What can I do with that? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it ties into, um, uh, a, well, it, it ties into the way I, I have been approach, approaching instrumental writing, which is to um, forget about um, the conventions. I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody nowadays writes extended techniques, I think. Most people, right? And then that, that yeah. is just like the new, new techniques for, for instruments. But for me, um, I went through a phase, I still am, I guess. I'm, I studied... I look into um, you know the idea of using found objects and the history of using found objects in music. You know, a lot of time it comes from percussion music, which you know we we talked about this last time. You as a percussionist, that's that's kind of your, you know, maybe that's 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 your piano right, in that case. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like every. Th- Anything you can hit can make a sound. Exactly. So we're we're gonna find out how to make a sound, and that is that is the percussionist way. We are quite annoying in most <laughs> respects to most other musicians because there's like we're always banging on something. Yeah, yeah, and so I was really, really intrigued by the fact that percussions can just make music out of everything, and so um, I started to think about extended techniques as a way of um uh what's the right word like maybe um reconsidering the possibility and treating instruments as very well built objects they're not found they're very pristine most of them but Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then like your practiced um, techniques as something that can also um, be explored and to and in a way forget about every single um, fundamental techniques you have learned and just think about what is the necessary way of articulating these instruments and to create the sound that really needs to be created. And so the piano was, um, in this case, was really very much used as an object. And so what if we don't play the keys? What's going to happen? And of course, um, being a pianist, I couldn't, couldn't help myself with having to write actually notes that you can play on the keyboard um, for that particular piece anyway, because I just want to see that being done. Um, but, you know, like prime, the, the primary um, sound palette for that piece was really trying to see if the piano um, can also be used as a found object. And through that process, we discover what its capacities could be. And of course, you know, tickling the piano strings and things like that, there's also nothing new. It's probably like a technique 70, 80 years old. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> right? And so there's also nothing new. But for me, the process of doing that was completely new. It's to really try very hard to um, forget about my own history with it, its own history. And what if it's just a big furniture sitting there? <laughs> right. <laughs> then what do we do about that um a very a, a tuneful furniture <laughs> yeah and it's interesting because last time we chatted um maybe i i told you about this i was working on the second piano piece um and now that piece is done and oh. uh, i'm actually flying to san diego in a couple of days to work with the pianist who's performing it um next month well no wait yeah next month in october mm-hmm. um and that is a piece where I really took off from radius and took out all the parts that you play on keyboard. So the piano never sits down and it's just everything is inside the piano. Um, right. Yeah, and for me, that finally felt right. You know, with radius, yeah. every time the pianos, piano sits down and play actual pianistic things, it, it, those were the moments that I liked the least because I was like, okay, well, why did I write this? Because I just want to feel good mm-hmm. about this, but it actually doesn't work in that context. Um, mm-hmm. And so I decided that I would not go back and be f- be really firm about that aspect. Um, and I mean, I haven't heard the piece yet, but the, the writing process felt um, a little bit more enjoyable than the mm-hmm. process of writing radius because for me that was still me working through that emotional um, aspect and then I picked out the best parts I liked about radius and then put it into the new piece um, mm-hmm. and so yeah I mean it's it's a you know you really do have to do it to get over certain things and it's a really strange yeah. feeling but now I'm glad I, I did it because now I can move on, right? Really, finally, it's like 12, right. 12 years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like a traumatic experience, but it wasn't. I mean, I did, I still love playing the piano, but you know, it was like a, a certain kind of environment that was just really not inviting, and just you know, for me, that was that was the end of that. So, yeah, what was the um, 
you know, you a while ago you said that, you know, you you had been kind of confronting this. Well, like, well, should I write a piano piece? Should I not? I'm not really ready for it. Mm-hmm. And then you said you had the opportunity to write one, so it's like, okay, it's time to face the fear. What mm-hmm. was that opportunity that caused you to write Radius? Um, so I did the um, uh, Voix Nouvelle Academy at um, Royal Mont Foundation uh, last summer. And so um, as you go and do these academies for young composers, they often give you uh, a set of instrumentations because they have guest performers and ensembles coming in to do readings. And so they were like, you know, big symphonietta ensemble, string quartets and other arrangements, smaller arrangements of these these ensembles combined. And then there was a piano solo. And I just looked at it and I was like, <laughs> I mean, I am so sure I'm going to be one of the only people who would write for a piano solo. Because everybody goes to right. these things, they want to like write big pieces, they want to right. work with like as many musicians as possible, make make an impact, make an impression, whatever. I mean I, I've done all of that before, so I, I know. Um and and for me that was just like, yeah, it really is time. And you knew um when an opportunity in an academy, which often doesn't really ask people to write piano pieces, um, mm-hmm. that it actually presents as one of the opportunities. And so I went for it, and of course nobody was in competition with me. And so I ended up just, you know, I, I, I spent so much time with Claudia Chen, the pianist who premiered it, um, and I rewrote the piece three times in during my time there and it was incredible because if i wrote say even a string quartet i wouldn't be able to do that um no absolutely not and that's that's the thing like when you when you end up working with a solo performer like for those for all those people taking oh i'm gonna take the entire sinfonietta yeah you know i'm gonna what how much rehearsal time are you realistically gonna get you know yeah cup like maybe I don't know, couple hours at most before mm-hmm. the performance. And and then it's just checking like, well, how's the level here? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not going to change any notes, but mm-hmm. like, is the, o- is the oboe too loud or is the trumpet too loud or, wh- or whatever? You know, with working so intimately with the performer, like they can really kind of shape the piece or at least shape your ideas of what the piece can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't have to worry about parts, <laughs> too. That's that was, true. That was another concern. <laughs> I would try to get out of making parts as much as possible. <laughs> parts, know, like, the bane of even, every composer's existence. Yeah, I either made the score impossible to read from parts, <laughs> or just don't write yep. music that needs parts. <laughs> I love going to a conductor in that situation and be like, you know, I, I really don't, I think it's just better to read off the score. It, you know, I think it'll go so much smoother if they just read off the score. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so that and all of these practical and selfish concerns <laughs> resulted <Yes>. in this decision. <laughs> uh, why is the piece called Radius? Um, so the... Hmm, What's this? What's the most straightforward way to answer this? 
Um, so it, it starts started off as something. Well, I knew I was going to write a piece where uh, physical gestures and sound will be equally important. And so I also know I want to use a lot of sound coming out from the piano. So this um, forwards and backwards uh, directionality became one of the um, uh, the elements that I started to explore. And then so I thought, okay, well, when you have um, you know the pianist le leaning backwards and forwards, there's a kind of like north and south kind of orientation. Mm -hmm. And then of course, um, as the pianist opens. Um, his or her arms to articulate, then you also get your your horizontal um, orientation too. So um, the way I thought about it is like, okay, well, what if the center of the the performer's body is the center of um, of a circle, and the two arms and the movements it creates, um, uh, or the choreography that involves the two arms are. Um, they form this kind of semicircular um, radius um, mm -hmm. in that context. So um, that became, um, I like the choreography of those movements became um, the, the, the first and maybe most important uh, material in this. And so that also concerns, concerns with how, how long the pianist's arms can reach how long their, their arms are and how far they can reach and therefore uh, what are their personal extremes, like what's the lowest and highest note they can actually articulate at the same time. Um, and so it also becomes a piece where it almost feels like it's a tailor-made clothing item for a performer where it's tailor-made measure to fit their body. And so a lot right, of times, yeah. yeah a lot of times the you know the pitch indication is the highest and lowest that you can reach not the the instruments can give you um mm -hmm. and the on the you know in in referencing that um that kind of structural and uh, material planning um i also came out with a set of pitches that um can form just you know um like fake um, harmonic motion um, and it's inverted backwards so you get one let's say a tone roll that can make some pitches and chords and you have the reverse of that tone roll so it's, you have kind of like a, um, a contrary like line kind of situation mm -hmm. yeah. and so that is ref reflected over an axis so you know I also divide it into um, grid and then and then draw two lines over it as if it was um, uh, encapsulated in a circle and so those mm -hmm. two wherever the lines meet are the important notes in this piece and of course only I would know this exists <laughs> nobody right, else yeah. would be able of to course. but for me it was kind of like okay well I have done everything I could to make sure this this idea is not random um, but you know like in, but, but then it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, this aspect of still including notes that need to be played on the keyboard, that also became the part for me that didn't quite work. Um, just because, mm -hmm. you know, actually the, the existence of this harmonic structure doesn't even mean very much in that context. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't my focus. 
but I just felt like I need to put it in there because it's a piano. And now when right. I, you know, a year later I'm thinking about it, I was like, oh hell no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. I won't do that again. <laughs> right? And there's so much right. more about not playing the notes that I still haven't discovered, but I was too scared to go full, full out that I still feel like I need to construct a pitch set and then it has to have all these elements too. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so I, you know, it was, it was, you know, like, like conceptually, it was very satisfying to have all these <laughs> ends attached to each other. They all make sense. Yeah. But, you know, as a piece of music, there are elements that just nobody else that but myself know they're there. <laughs> of course, <laughs> so. of course. Well, well, let's listen to it. Um, the performer on this recording, his name is Kyle Adam Blair, and this is Radius. Thank you. 
in the last piece, you we were kind of talking about your f- f- the way you've been working recently in terms of uh, kind of recontextualizing instruments or or you know thinking about found objects and. This, the second piece we're going to talk about is uh, makes use of instruments and objects alike. And mm-hmm. this is six, six legs and an amphibious state of mind. And this is for percussion, sextet, and live electronics. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, what are some of the different sounds that you use in this piece, whether they would be, you know, what we would term a found object quote unquote or rather an instrumental sound i mean like we said earlier when you're dealing with percussion just about everything is an instrument Mm -hmm. yeah um one thing i try to do for this piece is to um to treat the found objects and the instruments as the same and also the found objects more musical than the instrument as musical instruments. Um, and so um, I think for me, whenever I get a chance to write for, for percussion, I'm always overwhelmed with excitement. Cause, and then it's so exciting, you don't really know where to begin. Just like, oh my God, it's going to be amazing. Um, right. And <laughs> the world is your oyster. And of course, that's also problematic because you have to settle on something to begin yeah um and also i knew i didn't want to be dealing with pitches and so um something that would not give me um distinctive you know like pitch material was were the things that i was looking for um and so i i had um I was given access to this percussion studio at UCSD and it's a giant percussion studio has way too many things in it. And so, I, <laughs> so I went in and I just started to, you know, take out things and borrowing them and go home and record and try to hear things. And I know I wanted to play with things that has long resonance, um, but also I want to have sounds that can cut through that and have contrast. So something extremely dry and something extremely um, wet. And so, mm-hmm. and I also know I want to use live process, um, uh, live electronic processing using delay and reverb in different combinations. And so um, that parameter was defined quite early on. And, um, and then I started to think about, okay, well then what is this piece about? What, what am I writing? And so, um, you know, when I was listening to all of these recordings of instruments that I brought home and, and did treatments with, <clears throat> there was this idea of, um, like, memory started to emerge. It's kind of like through um, reverberation and through delay and things, um, it's almost like you have a picture of something and the more you looked at it, the fuzzier it gets. And then, mm-hmm. but yeah. then you revisit it again, and then the image is clear. But then after a while, it starts to become blurred, blurred again. And so this idea of how memory is constructed, that every time you reaccess it, it's the chemical component of how this piece of memory works gets retriggered, and therefore you remember it again. And then if you never 
access it, it would just go away. And so this right. this idea um, became very interesting to me, and then it kind of um, grows into an idea of um, like a cyclic um, pattern or something that is cyclical that will not break. And so I started to look for things that are round in the percussion instrument. I was like, okay, well, you know, if <laughs> a I lot have of this them. idea of a never, yeah, like never breaking circles, then let's go into the room and then find something that is circular. Um, and also is resonant and circular and, uh, and then let's see where, where to go from there. And so I picked up, um, this, this room also has way too many bass drums. And so I picked up six of them. Um, <laughs> Actually, I, did, I picked up three, um, three for, for the, the sextet, and um, they also have way too many um, steel drums, and they all tune mm-hmm. differently, and so and nobody ever used them, so they're just like collecting dust somewhere in the room, so I took them out, um, and so I, I got my round things, uh, and they were really cute sitting next to each other, everything is circular, um, and then I also knew I wanted the musicians to be very close, <clears throat> closely spaced within one another. And so they were also um, uh, arranged into a circle. And so it became a question of, okay, well now I know I have bass drums, which can ring forever. Um, and I also have some metallic things that have steel drum. And what else can I inject in that timbre that will give me something that is not resonant, but small enough can, that can um, be used as articulator of some sort. And so I came across ball bearings. Mm. Um, there's these metallic balls of different sizes. And, um, and I started to use them as um, articulators. And I've used rice and beans and things like that before, but they're a little bit too light for the texture I was looking for and with the processing. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like with the processing, they would just become like nothing really. Yeah. <laughs> if if anything, it would just be like high frequency kind of noisy things, especially yeah. like putting that into reverb. The re- You would just hear the reverb. Yeah. Yeah. And it was not very exciting for me. So, um, and once I discovered the, Using the ball bearings, I, I just throw it onto every single circular surface I could find and then see what happens. <laughs> and then it turned out, you know, luckily it was really interesting, particularly on the steel drums. Um, they kind of cre- started to create this almost frequency frequency shift, um, acoustically frequency, frequency shifting sound. Um, yeah. That was just unprocessed. And that, you know, from there onwards it became a... a, a a step of you know, timbral mapping what happens here and then how how does that match up to the process sound okay i will keep that i will not keep that and so a lot of so a lot of these filtering um kind of just define the, the the objects and the instruments to be on equal um equal part and um the and also at the same time, I was working with paper, especially parchment paper for a, a, um, a dance show that I was working on. And so um, I thought about also using paper as something that 
to me has a really dry sonic quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were the two main um, found things uh, I incorporated into the piece. And the rest is just like metallic um, you know, bell plates and of different sizes and um, car coils and a little bit of glass things. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those were, this is how the, the, the sound world kind of came together. I mean, when you're, when you're doing things, you know, that are kind of by definition, uh, random, you know, like swirling ball bearings on instruments or, you know, either, you know, swirling paper or crumpling paper or something like that. I've had students, you know, ask me this all the time. And I wanted to get your take on it because everyone's take is a little bit different in in terms of like, mm-hmm. how do you notate for these things, which it's really kind of difficult to say, well, I want this sound as you would when mm-hmm. you're writing for like a, you know, a violin or something like, oh, I want you to play an a, an A in the middle of the staff, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that's that's clear, like how that notation works. But when you're doing something like this, I mean, even mo, even the majority of percussion instru- instrumental notation, it's more or less set. But these kind of almost granular sounds mm-hmm. in and of themselves, like how do you go about notating that? I use a mixture of notation in this piece. Um, so uh, I for maybe every so for the the whole piece maybe besides four or five bars that were actually measured, everything was just timed. So mm-hmm. um, for me, it was um, telling the performers how long you should spend on doing certain actions that will give you the sound, mm-hmm. and by shortening the time, that gives the rhythmicity. Of, of that action and so um, I think um, for the bass drum um, for example um, you know I, I divided the drum into the top the middle and the bottom and then it is governed this the sound that's being created is governed by the movements that are um, um, designed to create these sounds. Mm-hmm. So I would say use, for example, use only two fingers, and then um, you know you go from the top of the drum to the middle and to the bottom, and has like a specific pattern that you move your your arm with. Um, and also I use <clears throat> uh, the thickness of the line to, to um, convey the idea of uh, uh, the the stress that's being place onto the, the drum skins uh-huh. with the with the hands. Um, and so that gives a really close um, sound to what I was looking for. And that one worked work well. And, you know, other things like Tam Tam with, with um, Super Bowls and things like that, that's yeah. very standard. Um, and, but then for some subtle things, like how, how do you rub the ball bearings together to create this kind of granular um, yeah. chirping sound? Um, I just say, do this, and then you're going to hear the sound. Right. So and, it's a lot of just in instruction with words kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's not even 
um, like you know, a performance direction page because that wouldn't work. So I started writing the specific um, re- sonic results and the way to do it straight onto their their parts with score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, and also I chopped in a lot of adjectives that always helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, like for these these particular people, so for redfish, bluefish, they they're pros at this, so they know. Uh, more or less what they were aiming for. In some other cases where I use um, similar timbre or similar approach to writing, I will often make videos of me doing that or make recordings of, of, of these things so that they know at least what they're aiming for. And since I'm not a trained percussionist, uh, I'm only a trained pianist really, that um, whatever I can do badly I'm sure the pros <laughs> they could do, do it better. better. <laughs> and so I just like, you know, I'll ashamedly make these videos of myself doing these things. And then they're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then they will often, they don't, they, they can get, get over that learning and try to figure out if this is correct or not correct. This is what I'm looking for. And it goes straight to interpreting and then making it better. And so that has become a much more sufficient way for me to convey these ideas when score itself um, becomes limited. Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally, you know, you know, you spend so much time just trying to find what are the right words to describe this thing that, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, uh, that I'm trying to get them to do. And so many times I, I think it would just be so much easier to just, Hey, just look, watch performance video number four and mm-hmm. you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's that's a great tool. Yeah. Um, you said this was written for Redfish Bluefish, and that's who we're going to hear on mm-hmm. the recording, right? Yes. And just before we listen to it, the title is pretty evocative. I mean, six <laughs> legs and an amphibious state of mind. Where does that Where does that come from? <laughs> so um, I'll explain the later part first. So the amphibious state of mind. Um, it's uh, it's something that's both dry and wet can exist mm-hmm. in both dry and wet. So, um, you know, it, it kind of refers to this this tambral quality I was talking about, where something is either very resonant or very dry that's not resonating and create a contrast. Um, and so, the 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 idea of dry and wet was always there, and but the amphibious part is instant. Um, it came from. Um, uh, a, a book I read and a movie I saw <laughs> before I reading I read the book. So the movie Arrival it has like you mm-hmm. know, extraterrestrial big eight leg bugs coming for peace. Um, right. And <clears throat> and it's coming from a story by Ted Chang called Stories of Your Life. Um, it's just that gorgeous short story, and the movie kind of butchered it a bit. Um, by turning into Hollywood. I mean, sure, I mean, the visual was very gorgeous, but the storyline kind of got twisted a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the fundamental aspect of that story that attracted me to it is this play um, with a sense of time. And so it's especially conveyed through using tenses. And so, um, you know, in a lot of languages like Chinese, there's no, no formation of... Um, time through the language itself is through descriptions right. that tells you what time of the day or what what happens when but with english and you know these um and and uh, related um 
languages, there's, you know, if you jumbled up the, the, the positioning of the tenses, it will create a very strange feeling of timeline. And this particular story plays with that idea in the structural level. And so you're always jumping back and forth between now and the past, but the past always the past happened, therefore you can see this future from where you are now. So it's like this past, mm -hmm. future, present all mixed into one and then through one change of uh, a verb or any word that you get a, a switch of timeline very quickly. And that was very, very, um, uh, it made a great impression on me as I was reading through this text. Um, and so, you know, as I was saying before, I, I thought about the idea of memory and how once you right. access it, it changes. And so this whole idea of um, linear and cyclic um, uh, uh, progression of time became a really strong focus. And so the amphibious part comes back to the movie itself um, by seeing these giant creatures with eight legs and right. then they, they like drawing circular patterns that mean something and it's a text but it's beautiful it's a picture but it's not a picture um, and so it's just like soup, it's multi-layered into um, what I wanted to create as a piece that addresses the mechanism of memory um, through six people who essentially have 12 arms so it should be a 12-legged animal but it's not i just say it's six um but right. there are six of them yeah. and so it's becoming this strange um their movements are also largely choreographed on the drums and on the large bell plates to kind of emulate some kind of um like insect leg movements but mm -hmm. not explicitly because everything they do has a sonic result so even if you miss that part at, of them being animals being part of a insect it's also okay because it's you know it's it's just there right. um and so yeah so that's that's where this title came about and it was very easy to arrive at this title for some strange reason it just makes sense it makes right. so much sense um and so yeah so it is you know partly inspired by sci-fi stories and partly <laughs> inspired by the sound and you know and text and everything so yeah so, well yeah. let's listen to it so we're going to hear redfish bluefish play six legs and an amphibious state of mind
And then uh, the last question, the one that I ask everyone who's on the podcast is, how did you come to music as something mm-hmm. that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, uh, well, <laughs> my mom enrolled me in a piano class when I was four. So I basically oh didn't, didn't know anything else. <laughs> And by the time yeah. I was 18, I was like, well, there's only one thing I can do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's only one thing. Also, there's only one thing I want to do. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, you know, I started very young and um, I've never thought about not doing it. And so mm-hmm. I think when I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, that wasn't really a question. Um and I just knew I have to be doing this. Um, and, you know, even though I was a pianist for most of my life before before I turned 22, I think, um, that, you know, like changing my instrument from piano to composition um, wasn't even um, a, a, a change of heart, really. It was just, I don't right. know, to change an instrument. Um, and it wasn't even like, you know, I want to quit music forever. It never occurred to me. Um, so yeah, so, you know, thank you, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it just feels good to be doing music. So I don't know why people are not doing it. So. <laughs> of course, there are also practical concerns, but hey. <laughs> sure. We we'll, we'll try to make it work. <laughs> Well, before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of your music or connect with you online? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on a, a few social media platforms, um, mostly Facebook, and that's where I post gigs and things. Um, I have a Twitter account, but I don't. I'm really bad at Twitter, so I try not to use it. <laughs> but you can tweet at me if you want. Um, and those would just be my name, really, my full name, Annie Huixinxie. Um, and but most, I think, the most useful thing you can find online is probably my website, which I update quite regularly. So there, you can find like performance dates, upcoming projects, um, sound examples, and stuff I find interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's just myname.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this again, Annie. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> It's it's so much fun talking to you. So it's I'm we're getting pretty we, good at it at this yeah, point, right? I'm I'm really glad I couldn't find those files that I get to talk to you again. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>